Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, 1 Kings chapter 2. Solomon is king of Israel. David is still alive, but he's weak and he's bedridden. It's taken a somewhat contrived and self-serving meeting arranged by Nathan, but between Bathsheba and David to get Solomon officially crowned as king. And this is because apparently David had decided that he just didn't have the heart to choose between the son who was first in line by birthright for the throne, Adonia, and Shlomo, Bathsheba's son, who was God's choice. Now we find that it's not unusual as God deals with humankind in this, that in this strange, inexplicable way, he's able to achieve his will even when those who are bringing it about don't realize it. Or they even actively oppose it. We should never think that as God's redeemed that we're immune to such a scenario. David is still regarded as perhaps second only to Messiah Yeshua, maybe to Moses, as nearest to the Father's heart. Yet David, who knows that Solomon is God's anointed, tries to avoid naming him king. It's not all that different from Pharaoh being resistant to Jehovah's will by refusing to let God's people go until Egypt was in ruins. In both cases, God used these men to advance his plan of redemption. In both cases, these men weren't particularly willing participants. In both cases, they were fully aware of God, of the God of Israel's direct involvement. And in both cases, God's will overrode their agendas. Even using those agendas to his purpose so that the next step in the Lord's cosmic plan could be taken. Even so, one man trusted Jehovah fully, and he is applauded by the Lord. The other trusted only his own false gods, and he's been eternally judged by the Lord. Truly, God is no respecter of persons. Saved or unsaved. I think it's important to state at this point that in our study of the two books of Kings, there are many important details about David's life and Solomon's reign and of this whole series of kings that followed them right up until Judah was hauled off to Babylon that are left out. Rather, some of these details are recorded for our benefit in the two books of Chronicles. And I think it's best, for the sake of continuity, that in general we follow the narrative of the two books of Kings because they're... Well, let's follow them just as they're written. Not try to intertwine all of the additional information 
that's given to us in Chronicles. See, our goal is to study the books of the Bible in order. Not to study the personal history of any particular Bible character using facts that can be gleaned from various places in the Bible where this information might appear. So with that caveat in mind, let's read now 1 Kings chapter 2. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 368. First Kings chapter 2. <clears throat> the time came near for David to die. So he commissioned Shlomo, his son, as follows. I am going the way of all the earth, therefore be strong. Show yourself a man. Observe the charge of Adonai your God to go in his ways and keep his regulations, mitzvot, rulings and instructions in accordance with what is written in the Torah of Moses so that you will succeed in all that you do wherever you go. If you do, Adonai will fulfill what he promised me when he said, if your children pay attention to how they live, conducting themselves before me honestly with all of their heart and being, you will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, You are aware of what Yoav, the son of Seruiah, did to me. That is, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel. Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Yeter. He killed them, shedding the blood of war in peacetime, putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and the shoes on his feet. Therefore, act according to your wisdom. Don't let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Giladi. Include them with those who eat at your table because they came and stood with me when I was fleeing from Absalom, your brother. Finally, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gerah the Benjamite from Bahrim. He laid a terrible curse on me when I was on my way to Machanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Yarden. So I swore to him by Adonai that I would not have him put to death with the sword. Now, however, you should not let him go unpunished. You're a wise man. You will know what you should do to him. You will bring his gray head down to the grave with blood. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. David had ruled Israel for 40 years, seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his rule had become firmly established when Adonia the son of Hagit came to Bathsheba the mother of Shlomo and she asked have you come as a friend and he answered yes as a friend and then he continued I have something to say to you and she said go on and he said you know that the kingdom should have been mine that all Israel was looking to me to be their ruler no matter The kingdom has turned around and become my brothers because Adonai gave it to him. But now I ask one favor of you. Don't deny me. Go on, she said. He said, please, speak to Solomon the king for he won't say no to you and ask him to give me Abishag the Shunammit as my wife. And Bathsheba said, all right, I'll speak to the king on your behalf. 
So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonia. The king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. And then he sat down on his throne and had a throne set up for the king's mother so that she sat at his right. And she said, I'm asking one small favor of you, so don't deny me. And the king said to her, Ask, mother, I won't deny you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, Why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonia? Ask the kingdom for him too. After all, he's my older brother. Yes, for him and for Eviatar the Cohen and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. And the king, then King Shlomo swore by Adonai, May God do terrible things to me, and worse if Adonia hasn't condemned himself to death with this request. Now therefore, as Adonai lives, who has established me, put me on the throne of David my father, and set up a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonijah will certainly be put to death today. King Solomon commissioned Benaiah the son of Yahayoda, and he struck him down so that he died. To Eviatar the Cohen, the king said, You, get yourself to Anatot, to your own fields. You deserve to die, but I'm not going to put you to death just now since you did carry the ark of Adonai Elohim before David my father, and you suffered together with my father and everything he suffered. So Shlomo forced Eviatar out of his tasks as the high priest to Adonai so that what Adonai had said in Shiloh about the family of Eli might be fulfilled. And when the news came to Yoav, he fled to the tent of Adonai and took hold of the horns of the altar. For Yoav had given his support to Adonia, even though he had not supported Abishalom. And King Shlomo was told, Yoav has fled to the tent of Adonai. He's there by the altar. Shlomo sent Benaiah, the son of Yehoiada, with the order, Go, strike him down. Benaiah came to the tent of Adonai and said to him, The king says, Leave. He answered, No, I'd rather die here. Benaiah brought the message back to the king. This is what Joab said to me. And the king answered him, Do what he said. Strike him down. Bury him. In this way you will take away from me and my father's family the blood which Joab shed for no reason. Adonai will bring his blood blood back on his own head because he struck down two two men more righteous and better than he. He killed them with the sword without any reason. He killed them without the sword, without my father David's awareness. Abner the son of Ner commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Yeter, commander of the army of Judah. In this way their blood will return on the head of Joab and his descendants forever, but for David, his descendants, his family, and his throne, there will be peace forever from Adonai. So Baniah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck him down and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the desert. The king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in charge of the army instead of him and the king replaced Abiatar with Zadok the Kohen. The king summoned Shimei and said to him build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there. Don't go outside the city walls. Know for a fact that on the day you go out and cross the Wadi Kidron you will certainly die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei answered the king What you have said is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. 
So Shimei lived in Yerushalayim for a long time. But after three years, two of Shimei's slaves ran away, and they went to Achish, son of Ma'achah, the king of Gat. And they told Shimei, your slaves are in Gat. So Shimei set out. He saddled his donkey and he went to Akish in Gat to look for his slaves. Then Shimei returned, bringing his slaves from Gat. Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gat and back. The king summoned Shimei and said to him, Didn't I have you swear by Adonai and forewarn you by telling you no for a fact that on the day you leave and go anywhere outside the city you will certainly die? And you answered me, What you're saying is good, I hear it. Why then haven't you kept the oath of Adonai and the command I charged you with? Moreover, the king said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the terrible things you did to David my father. Therefore, Adonai will bring back your wickedness on your own head. But King Shlomo will be blessed, and the throne of David will be established before Adonai forever. So the king gave the order to Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down so that he died. Thus the kingdom was established in Solomon's hands. Well, I think it's undeniable that what we have here is nothing short of a sordid account of power politics mixed with an attempt by the writer to kind of soften it all by implying some religious overtones to David's and Solomon's actions. This is why I began this lesson with the statement that God regularly uses the imperfect and even wicked actions of men and women to achieve his goals. David and Solomon taking severe preemptive steps against citizens who they deem to be a possible threat to their power or that have upset them in some way hardly qualifies as justifiable or pious. But since the writer of the book of Kings wrote with the benefit of hindsight and he can view matters in a broad panorama He can see the Lord's hand at work, even in David's and Solomon's questionable agendas and decisions. I don't want to take this analogy too far, but it's somewhat like Hitler's horrific and evil intent to rid the world of Jews. In the end, this is what drove the Jewish people to demand a state of their own and a disgraced and guilt-ridden world to give it to them. Looking back, we see that God's will for the rebirth of Israel as a nation of Hebrews was achieved as a result. Yet it most certainly wasn't the Lord's perfect will that it happened because of the worst incidents of mass murder that the world has ever known. In other words, Hitler should get no credit, he should receive no pardon, and he certainly ought to be viewed for the demonic person that he was, even though it was by means of his wicked agenda that something wonderful came out of it. David and Solomon were certainly not a couple of Hitlers, but neither were they saints who only had God's will at 
heart. I don't mean to hammer this home too hard, but if we're going to take an honest approach to what is clearly stated in the book of Kings, then we need to acknowledge their fallen humanness and not try to paint it over as do most of the ancient and modern rabbis and a substantial portion of past and present Christian leadership. Otherwise, some of the best applications of God's principles to our own lives that get demonstrated in these passages are just bypassed and we lose out. The first words of the opening verse are telling. For the first time in a long time, David is referred to without the title of king being attached to his name. And the idea is that David is no longer king, but Shlomo is. The royal torch is passed, and thus the time for David to depart this earth has come. Verse 2 tells us of David charging Solomon to discharge his new duties in a manner that is appropriate, not merely for a king, but for God's anointed. So here we have David's deathbed instructions to his son's successor, who can be no more than 20 years old, probably he's in his late teens. Compare this with David who didn't become a king until he was at least 30 years of age, and thus more mature, better prepared. Let me comment here that the rabbis say Solomon was 12 years old when he became king. And their primary criteria for that belief has to do with David telling Solomon to show yourself a man. In other words, their thought is that Solomon is still legally a child since he hasn't been bar mitzvahed yet, usually at 13 years old. He hasn't come of age to be called an adult, a man. Actually, I think that's pretty fanciful. And it belies the context of what we see happening. But what that... Binnacle Declaration actually does is to read backwards into Scripture a Talmudic tradition that wasn't established until at least the first century AD, maybe even later. There is no biblical, archaeological, or Jewish historical record of such a thing as a bar mitzvah. All right? Or that 13 was the magic age prior to around the time of Christ. So when David tells Solomon to show yourself an ish, a man, it is truly about telling this teenager that it was necessary for him to grow up, put behind him the ways of youth, now that he had the fate of a nation resting squarely on his shoulders. But because there was no ordinary nation or rather this was no ordinary nation, but rather it was the earthly kingdom of God, and because Solomon was God's Mashiach, his anointed one, divinely appointed to lead God's kingdom, then David reminds Shlomo that spiritual awareness, faithfulness to God, 
And obedience to Yehovah's Torah was to be at the core of his administration. And that it was by means of walking in this path that Solomon would achieve success. Then David adds something a little bit unexpected. He adds a condition to God's promise of an everlasting Davidic dynasty that we haven't heard until now. This is, that is rather, that David tells his son that God told him that if David's royal descendants follow the Lord with all of their heart and being, then there will always be a member of David's family on the throne of Israel. Let's go back for a minute and reread what we find about this promise in the book of 2 Samuel. Just go back a few pages to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just a few pages back in your Bible. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 together. Page 341 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Now this is the promise as given to David. When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood, and I'll set up his membership, or rather his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I will punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Thus, your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. There really isn't an if-then formula in that statement. It's more along the lines of a unilateral promise given to David in a very similar manner as to the one as the one given to Abraham. Even so, David certainly sees God's promise to him as having conditions in the sense that all kings issuing from his loins, must be faithful to God if they're going to remain on the throne. Let's sort this out a little bit. The words of 2 Samuel 7, your throne will be set up forever, do not mean that no king in David's dynasty would ever be removed from his throne no matter what the cause. Rather it means that the posterity of David would never end. It means that David's kingly line would never become extinct. It means that there would forever be a descendant of David alive and legally eligible to take possession of the throne, whether that possession took place or not. Yeshua would become the ultimate fulfillment of that promise on a whole other level, spiritual and earthly. It would be wonderful if that's where David's speech to Shlomo ended, but sadly it does not. The Bible doesn't hide from us 
the uglier side of even God's greatest heroes. We are witnesses to another set of instructions now that aren't so high-minded and godly. But they are from the sincere and loving concern of a father towards a son. There were great political dangers lurking all around Solomon and David doubted that this youthful man who stood at his bedside was fully aware of them or even even knew how to deal with them. So in the next several passages are what most would call two acts of revenge and one act of blessing upon some men who were very close to the throne or represented a threat to the throne during David's reign. Now, since we've read them, but before I go over them in detail, I want to begin by defining the term revenge. That word isn't used in these passages, but it is used by rabbis and Christian scholars to describe the nature of what David told Solomon to do with David's enemies. Now the Torah, on the one hand, forbids revenge. But on the other, says that God will take revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. This is probably one of the most memorable passages a Christian puts in our little pea brains. In fact, in a certain sense, revenge is a positive thing when used properly in the context of the Lord's ordained justice system as called for in the law of Moses. The rabbis say that what Scripture shows us is that mankind has the opportunity to pursue revenge for two reasons. One of them is wrong. And the other is required. Or at least it's recommended. When a person wants to satisfy their desire to punish another as an anger-induced tit-for-tat, like-for-like reaction, to being offended, a personal need for retaliation, that's wrong. However, this is still the world. And in this world, justice that involves proportional punishment in response to a crime is not only warranted, it's commanded by Yehovah. Wrongs need to be righted. And those criminals who do wrong need either to be punished or to pay reparations. The first kind of revenge is typical of humans. The second kind is typical of God. The principle of the desire to punish out of anger for an offense, and this is wrong-minded, is usually expressed expressed in Christendom by this famous statement of Jesus from Matthew 5.39. But I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. 
turn the other cheek. This statement of Messiah is not about criminal activity. It's about personal offense. And our knee-jerk reaction to want to strike back. In our time in the West, if someone literally slaps your face, that's called assault. And it's usually a misdemeanor criminal offense. But that certainly wasn't the case 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Rather, such a slap was just an insult. Thus, this is the sense of Yeshua's statement not to seek revenge for a personal offense, a personal insult. However, God makes it clear in the law of Moses that God defined wrongdoing and criminal activity, we got a name for that, sin, is to have consequences. Or, if you would, legally and heavenly sanctioned revenge. To not administer this revenge as justice is itself wrong. Listen to Exodus 21, 20 through through 25. If people are fighting with each other and happen to hurt a pregnant woman so badly that her unborn child dies, then, if, then even if no other harm follows, he must be fined. He must, be, he must pay the amount set by the woman's husband and confirmed by judges. But if any harm follows, then you are to give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. See, the law describes what is right and what is wrong. And it prescribes punishment for criminal activity. However, as this passage in Exodus is telling us, the punishment must fit the crime. It must be proportional to the harm caused by the crime. You can't kill a thief for stealing your sheep. You can't demand that a man pay you back a bull because he lamed your donkey. When administered according to God's justice system, revenge is not only right, it's required. So what about David and Solomon? Was what David was suggesting and what Solomon eventually did right or wrong? Was it human revenge or was it godly justice? We're going to deal with that as we go on a case-by-case basis. The first case is in verse 5. It involves Joab, David's general of the army. Joab was David's nephew. But he had committed a number of offenses that caused David great heartache and problems. Interestingly, the offense that David lists involved the political assassinations of two of David's army commanders. Now one might have thought that when David is speaking to Shlomo about what Joab did to me, he would have been recalling Joab killing David's rebellious son Absalom as he hung helplessly from a tree branch caught by his head. David had given explicit orders that Absalom was to be treated gently 
if he was captured. But as Yoav was so often in the habit of doing, and he had the power of the army behind him so he could do it, he ignored orders. He did what he felt like doing. That day, he felt like killing Absalom. But no. David told Solomon that Joab needed to be dealt with on account of his murdering Abner and Amasa. It indeed was murder, at least in David's eyes. As he says that Joab shed the blood of war in peacetime. In other words, in the time of war, one soldier killing another soldier, an enemy, is considered justifiable homicide by the Torah law. Killing in battle is not an offense to God. It is not a crime. However, when it is time, it's in a time of peace, and one soldier kills a rival soldier out of hatred or revenge or some personal reason, that is unjustifiable homicide. Both Amasa and Abner were under David's authority. It was a time of relative peace and Joab killed them on separate occasions merely because he didn't want his own position as general of the army compromised. So if David sees what Joab did as a criminal offense, why didn't he exact justice at the time? By the laws of Torah, Joab should have been arrested, tried, and executed. The reality is that at the time, David didn't feel he could do without Joab. And he didn't see himself in a strong enough position politically or militarily to bring Joab up on charges. So essentially, what David did was to transfer the carrying out of justice upon Yoav to Solomon. If we will only read what is written, <clears throat> we see that David did not actually tell Solomon to kill Joab in revenge. He merely told Solomon to act according to what he thought was the best course of action. However, David cautioned Shlomo not to allow Joab to go down to the grave in peace. Or in Hebrew, Solomon should not allow Joab to go to Sheol in Shalom. Sheol is not just the grave, but it's also the portal into the underworld of the dead. It can be a pleasant place or it can be a place of discomfort. All go to Sheol. But one's fate while there could be quite different for the wicked versus the good. This fuzzy concept of Sheol eventually became attached to the Greek idea of Hades, a place of fire, of eternal punishment. However, that wasn't really the Hebrew idea. The Hebrew idea evolved into the concept 
that after entering Sheol, somehow the wicked became assigned to an underground chamber called the Place of Torments. While the righteous dead became assigned to another underground chamber called Abraham's Bosom. The idea is this. Since Yoav is a wicked man, he should not enjoy a normal personal lifespan and die at the end of his days. And he certainly should not enter into Sheol and receive shalom, well-being. Such is the intended blessing for a righteous man. Thus what David is doing is telling Solomon that he needs to watch him very closely. Keep him away from power. Make him uneasy. Remove authority from him. And he's implying that Solomon should be on the lookout to find a way to make Joab guilty of a capital offense so that he can legally execute him. In contrast to Joab, in verse 7, David instructs Solomon that he should show continued kindness, chesed, to the sons of Barzillai. And as king, Shlomo should continue the practice of providing these sons with royal provisions, keeping them near the royal family, even allowing them to dine with the royal court. The principle David is demonstrating is that while punishment is just, so is reward for loyalty, a needed thing. Barzillai was an elderly but wealthy Gentile who lived in the Transjordan. He became a great friend to David when David was fleeing from his son, Absalom. Barzillai provided food and comforts for David and his family for many weeks as they lived in ex exile and, and gathered strength for a counterattack to defeat Abishalom's rebel forces. And when David began his return to Jerusalem, he offered for Barzillai to come with him, but he politely refused. However, he did accept for his sons, and they are the subjects of this instruction to Solomon. Next in verse 8, <clears throat> David tells Solomon to deal with Shimei, the Benjamite from Bahrim. On his way out of town, out of Jerusalem, this man cursed David. And he threw stones and dirt at him, no doubt figuring that David's reign as king was over. But to Shimei's surprise, when David's forces defeated Absalom's and David began his march back to reassume the throne in Jerusalem, Shimei greeted him and now he asked for mercy. And along with him came 1,000 of his Benjamite tribesmen. The, the wise David promised not to kill him with the sword primarily because he didn't want to mar this joyous day with death. This man must have been even older than David by now. But he was still living and David was concerned that he might try to incite rebellion against Solomon. David told Shlomo he should kill Shimei for punishment, for revenge. So what we see <clears throat> is that David told Solomon to find a way 
to deal with Joab, but that he wasn't necessarily suggesting that he kill him. Next, he insists that Solomon continue rewarding Barzillai's sons for their and their father's great loyalty and David's worst hour. And finally, he outright orders Solomon's son to or Solomon rather to kill Shimei. Again, David prefaces his instructions by saying that Solomon should use wisdom to decide how to bring about Shimei's death. Well, as is so typical for the Bible, when even the great Bible heroes dies, it's met with little fanfare. Verse 10 just briefly states that David died and he was buried in the city of David and that he had ruled first over Judah for seven years and then 33 years over the United Kingdom of Israel for a total of 40 years. These are round numbers. They're not meant to be exact figures. In fact, we know from 2 Samuel 5 that David ruled in Hebron not for seven years, but for seven and a half. Precise amounts of time seem so important to us in our day. But back then, it was a very trivial matter. A year here or there was entirely secondary to the greatness of the person being spoken of or to the importance of an event that was recorded. Sequence and substance mattered. Time didn't. Now where David was buried is rather interesting. No doubt he was initially buried near the city of David and no doubt in some family tomb. Now as we've discussed many times, to sleep with one's ancestors is a holdover phrase from the days of ancestor worship which still played a factor in the Hebrew religion when it came to death and afterlife beliefs. Now although the Israelites indeed thought of a righteous person dying and receiving the reward of communing eternally with his ancestors in another world, the term slept with his ancestors had kind of come to denote dying in peace. In other words, this was at least the most positive aspect of death, and then even more than now, death was not a welcome thing. Rather than living an afterlife of discomfort, as did the wicked dead, the righteous dead lived in a relatively pleasant afterlife, with the chief attribute being Reunited, reunited with their departed family. Now we know from several ancient records that David's royal family tomb was in use for around 300 years up until the time of King Manasseh. Later in the time that the Persian Empire arose, which defeated Babylon, that allowed the Jews to go home, the book of Nehemiah reports that the Davidic tombs were located in the southeast part of the city of David. Now those of you who have been to Israel with me might kind of recognize this scene. You've got the city of David uh, perched on this, this sloping hill. 
This picture that you see is, pro- is taken from somewhere up in the Temple Mount area looking down, maybe on the street just outside the wall, but it's at the top end in what today would be called the Ophel, looking down the hill. So here's the Kidron Valley down here, and then you see all this Arab housing that's grown up and all around what was the city of David. These are the, some of the ancient walls you see here, some of the excavations. Josephus even tells us that these graves were robbed for their wealth. So until Josephus' day, the whereabouts of David's family tomb complex was known. Even with all this information, modern archaeologists have never found these tombs, likely due to the Arab housing developments that were built there. I pointed, just pointed them out to you, all around here. All right. Thus, there's no way for archaeologists to explore under Arab homes, since the last thing the Arab Muslims want is for evidence of David's tomb to be found, where they claim that the Jews never existed. Now, the current day site of David's personal tomb is on Mount Zion. It's an area several hundred yards to the northwest from the city of David. This is an area of Jerusalem that is owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. It's located, the tomb area is located in a building that also houses the New Testament upper room where Paul and others of Jesus' disciples met. In fact, The tomb of David that you see pictured here is essentially directly below the upper room. It's anyone's guess as to whether at some point David's remains were moved to this location and if what's in that crypt is actually David. The rabbis are adamant that this is the case and it's certainly feasible. Well, upon verse 12, some unknown amount of time has passed. Not too long, I think. And Shlomo is now well established as the undisputed king of Israel. And out of the blue, when all seems to be peaceful and calm and the transition from David to Solomon has run its course, Adonijah reappears. And he makes a secret visit to Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. However, when the surprised Bathsheba receives Adonia, she immediately requires, have you come as a friend? Or better, have you come in peace? And he reassures her that he has. Now why would she ask such a thing? Because the rivalry between Adonia's mother's family and Bathsheba's family was ongoing, even if it had only been simmering just under the surface. You know, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that because of the liberal acquisition of wives and concubines, the sons born to a king were actually mostly loyal to their mother's families. In other words, while they all had the same father, the king, 
What divided them was that they were born to diff to a whole number of different mothers. So they were invariably far more closely tied to their mother's side of the family than to their father's. Bathsheba would have been far wiser to refuse an audience to Adonijah because it's difficult to think of anything of a positive nature that he might be wanting. But being a woman and having a mother's heart and also no doubt being curious why he would take such a risk, she allowed him to speak. And he begins with a provocative statement that ought to have had him booted out before he could speak one more word. But Bathsheba tolerates it. He virtually gives away his purpose for coming to King Solomon's mother's home when he says, by all rights, he should have been king. He even boasts that all of Israel was looking to him to be the next ruler. You know, this part's probably true. But it was dumb to say it. Since David had gone totally silent about who was to succeed him, the people of Israel had to assume that it would be Adonia because he was the the legitimate next in line. And as I mentioned in our last lesson, there's no evidence that he was a bad man or would have even made a bad king. The problem for him was he wasn't God's man. Now we're going to leave it here. And next week we're going to see what comes out of this clandestine meeting between the king's mother and the man who figured he ought to have been king.